Bonsoir, vive l'Empereur, and welcome to the Other Napoleon podcast, episode one, the first official episode. We've had the pilot, and now we dig into things. So, I'm Tom. And I'm Jack. Bonsoir, vive l'Empereur, as has become customary in these parts. Rapidly become customary. So, today we're going to be asking the big question that's probably on many people's lips is why does Napoleon III matter? Why should you, dear listener, care about Napoleon III? So, a simple look online would reveal that Napoleon III ruled France between 1848 and 1870 before going into his final exile in Chislehurst, a suburb of London, after his humiliation in the Franco Prussian War. He had enjoyed a longer reign than the original Napoleon, and yet there is far less fame and mythology around his second empire than that of his uncle, Napoleon I. It's true, no one knows him. Yeah. I barely know him. (laughs) We talk about the podcast, and either there's a blank stare, or people just start talking about Napoleon I. So he's someone in the English-speaking world that, if anything, he's probably most famous for being skewered by two titans of 19th century writing, and that would be Karl Marx and Victor Hugo. Yes, uh, our friends Karl Marx and Victor Hugo uh, had a few things to say about our friend Napoleon III. Karl Marx even went as far as to write a whole book about the man, the 18th brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, uh, from which we take the... uh, oft-quoted phrase, first as tragedy, second as farce. The first time was his uncle, the second time was the man himself. Um, If that wasn't enough, Karl Marx went in once more and added (laughs) that the socioeconomic conditions in France made it possible for a grotesque mediocrity to play a hero's part. Victor Hugo, also not a fan. No, not a fan at all. So, Victor Hugo, of course, the author of Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, for our listeners in America. Uh, (laughs) He was close to the political action um, around the time of uh, Napoleon III. And he was actually serving as a representative in France's National Assembly. And he, in the assembly was responding to a proposed constitutional change that would extend President Louis Napoleon's term, that he asked, because we have had a Napoleon the Great, must we now have a Napoleon the Little? That is gunshots again. (laughs) Hugo would go on to use Napoleon the Little as the title of a particularly scorching pamphlet in which he described the emperor as a man of middle height, Cold, pale, slow, who looks as if he were not quite awake, esteemed by women who want to become prostitutes, and men who want to become prefects. A man of middle height, cold, pale, slow. Sounds like uh, Middlesbrough's strike force of the season. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's also time to cancel Victor Hugo uh, many years after his death for uh, not seeing sex workers instead of prostitutes. (laughs) And even in France... Napoleon III seems to be history's forgotten man. Fenton Bresler. Fenton! 
one of his few English language biographers notes that there is hardly a single square, boulevard, street, or avenue in the whole country that is named after Napoleon III, and all public places that did bear his name were swiftly changed after his fall. This comes in sharp contrast to Napoleon I, where almost every town in France seems to have a Place Napoleon, a Boulevard de l'Empereur, or something similar. Mm, yeah, you can hardly swing a baguette in Paris without hitting a uh, Street Le Bonaparte or something similar. Yeah, that's probably why you weren't invited back. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and yet, when we take a close look at the mid-19th century, we begin to uncover the huge impact of Napoleon III and his second empire of France. From a childhood in comfortable exile... Nepo, baby. <laughs> one of the greats <laughs> up there with Brooklyn Beckham. <laughs> From a comfortable childhood in which he was never the expected heir to the Bonaparte claim on the French throne... This inscrutable and adaptable outsider came to lead one of the world's most dynamic and influential powers in a time of great modernization and upheaval. Yeah, he was a politician, really, of quite limited ideological vision. But what he did have was real craft and daring. So, as we'll see, in 1851, he finally seized power in his third coup attempt. So, try, try again, kids. And he skillfully secured his rule over France, selectively using the levers of democracy. From then on, until his crushing military defeat at the hands of Bismarck's Prussia in 1870, Napoleon III was at the heart of European and world affairs for close to 20 years. He allied with Britain and the Ottomans to limit Russian expansion through his participation and eventual victory in the Crimean War. Come on. And he played a pivotal role, somewhat unwittingly, in the eventual unification of Italy. Mamma mia. <laughs> Within France, Napoleon accelerated the previously lagging industrialization of France through financial reforms and his expansion of the railways. For the benefit of workers, he would legalize strikes for the first time since 1810. And he also guaranteed Sundays off for government workers. Nice. <laughs> we can all get behind that. He also worked in tandem with the suspiciously German-sounding George Hausmann to transform the dreary and tired Paris into the handsome metropolis we know and love today. Yes, your boy Hausmann. Uh, thankfully, he didn't give us autobahns and, uh, <laughs> down the middle of... Uh, in the middle of Paris. Um, Proto-techno, maybe. You never know. <laughs> That's a great point. I think the Paris we know and love mm. um, is the Paris of Haussmann and it's the Paris of Napoleon III. Um, not only did they transform it, uh, what it looks like, the architecture. The built environment. <laughs> you can tell he works in a university. <laughs> <can't you? laughs> um they transformed uh, economically in the country economically. Uh, this was really the the establishment of French capitalism. Mm. Uh, the big companies we know and love, um, Le Creuset, 
Yeah, I prefer rustlers, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doesn't really know his way around a La Cruze, but give him a microwave and <laughs> he's away. Uh, the big department stores uh, we know in in, in Paris, um, Primark. Primark. <laughs> <laughs> they all they all stem from this period. I think what Napoleon, what this tells us about Napoleon. Who knows? The jury's out. I think his philosophy is a bit of an enigma. He's a hard man to pin down. Yeah. Philos- um, philosophically, I think a few ladies did pin him down along the way, but... Uh, <laughs> Noted for being pinned down. <laughs> his, uh, his philosophy is, uh, is sometimes hard to pick out. Yeah. But I think what's clear is he... I think his watchword was progress. Mm. He was astutely aware of the of the world around him. The, the 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 changes that were going on in the in the world in Europe in the nineteenth century, and he wanted a bit of that for France. He wanted a bit of industrialization for France. He wanted that change for France, and uh, he he achieved it in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like you mentioned, the railways, unprecedented railway building, uh, Rishi Sunak. Please, <laughs> please take a page out of this guy's book. Absolutely, get us that, uh, get us that uh, Richmond station back up and running. Yeah, and actually, while you're at it, do get get the next houseman to uh, rebuild Hither Green from <laughs> <laughs> the ground up. Yeah, but going back to going back to the history, I think what he was trying to do is usher in an industrial revolution, um, and this was he was a big economic liberal but was he the precursor to franklin roosevelt he Mm. believed he he believed in a sort of state-sponsored capitalism i believe he described the state as a necessary ulcer and that it must play a crucial role to undertake ambitious projects to once construct and dazzle yeah absolutely and i think uh, that combination of um setting free capitalism within france and the progress that would bring but also really having a focus on alleviating the worst aspects of 19th century capitalism and his you know concerns and war on pauperism that really uh, feeds into napoleon iii as quite a novel uh, phenomenon within politics he was ultimately a benign dictator and he to my mind lent on his uncle's historical profile and military prowess. But he always sought to retain that veneer of popular support. So we see, and we'll dig into this, across his reign, he was unpopular among the intelligentsia and the Parisian workers. But what he was good at is using the plebiscites and the public votes with universal male suffrage and that made him incredibly hard to displace so i think it was eric hobsbawm in the age of capital who noted that he never forgot the political advantages of universal suffrage and he was one of the first rulers dictators really who ruled not by simple armed force but by the sort of demagogy and public relations that are more easily operated from the top of the state than anywhere else yeah he's uh he's an interesting figure in that way uh he doesn't easily fit into any category right he was a he was a dictator he was a liberal 
He was uh, at times a sort of proto-socialist. He was uh, people have compared him to Franco and to uh, sort of given his sort of regime uh, a, um, a characterization of sort of proto-fascist. Um, yeah, I think you can see elements of Franco and Mussolini there in terms of the uh, populist strongman who is a uh, paternal figure for the nation. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But unusually for any regime, after an initially authoritarian regime, uh, authoritarian sort of phase in the first, what, 10 years or so, mm. it sort of moved in a more liberal direction. Yeah. Um, which, again, this is up for debate, but does that speak to his sort of inherent and genuine belief in a sort of liberalism, in a belief in freedom, Mm. Um, and a genuine desire to want to um, sort the people out yeah. to make their lives better. <laughs> to Sort them out. <laughs> so, uh, to improve their lot. Um, or does it speak to necessity? Did he need to do that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, a big question, isn't it? Whether these were um, instincts of his own uh, and preferences of his own or whether he was uh, simply responding to um pressure and the the tides of of time and the emergence of the uh working class as we understand it today but yeah we've certainly got plenty of time to dig into this throughout the series <laughs> and so do you dear listener <laughs> So, how do we get from the age of Napoleon to the dawn of Napoleon III? We're going to explore the childhood and the youth of the future Emperor Napoleon III, not to mention the fate of Napoleon II. Who the fuck's that? <laughs> In the next episode. But for those of you who are relying on the films of Ridley Scott and this podcast for your historical knowledge... Bruh. Yeah, there's no uh, there's no gladiators, uh, sadly, in this uh, in this podcast, listener. No gladiators, I'm afraid. Uh, but what we do have is a abbreviated account of what happened uh, in France and across Europe after Napoleon's final defeat at Waterloo, which you saw in the film, of course. So Napoleon, the big man, is exiled to Saint Helena, not Saint Helens, Lancashire. <laughs> That would be a fate worse than death. <laughs> <laughs> On St. Helena, this is in 1815, um, and throughout his stay there, he's guarded by over 2,000 soldiers. Uh, the Brits, us Brits, <laughs> obviously learnt our lesson from Elba. Um, here he wrote his memoirs um, before dying in 1821. Most people think from stomach cancer. And the leadership of France passed to... King Louis XVIII. I know that's not uh, Elon Musk and Grimes' latest child. <laughs> it's King Louis Eighteenth, And he had actually been ruler of France officially since uh, Napoleon's forced abdication in 1814. And it was in 1814 where the first meetings of the Congress of Vienna had actually taken place. And this is where essentially the forces of reaction in Europe, along with Britain, who was kind of in the middle, got together and decided what the new political settlement 
would look like after Napoleon was off the stage. It was chaired by the Austrian Foreign Minister, Clemens von Metternich, a wily and intelligent arch-conservative. Sounds a lot like our producer, Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) He's giving us the thumbs up. (laughs) And it reconvened after Waterloo. Essentially, defeat at Waterloo meant that France was even more likely to be punished. The settlement reached after Waterloo was harsher than initially proposed, but I guess that was inevitable. (laughs) Yeah, don't have the biggest battle ever and then ask for uh, (laughs) a cushy settlement. Yeah, it's not not an ideal way to play it. France lost territories um, around its borders and was forced to pay indemnities um, for three years. But I think it's sort of important to note that this wasn't a defeat. It wasn't a crushing defeat. It wasn't yeah. annihilation. Yeah. Um, we look at the Treaty of Versailles. Everybody knows the story there. Yeah. Germany are humiliated after the after the First World War. Their territories are vastly reduced. Mm. We all know the story. Then that that humiliation leads to the Second World War. This wasn't the case. The the sort of Treaty of Vienna, um, the Congress of Vienna, should I say, was designed to sort of restore the balance of power. Yeah, um, so. this was the sort of the, the the key doctrine of the time, sort of the balance of power, letting no nation be more too powerful so as to overcome the rest. Noted peace merchant mm. Henry Kissinger, God rest his soul, R.I.P. Even cited the Treaty of Vienna in his book World Order as a model for a lasting peace. So, if you can't trust that, what can you trust? Exactly, and I think as well, it's important to understand that. It didn't really have to be a particularly punitive settlement. France's position uh, after Waterloo was already much diminished. As Richard Evans notes, uh, the prospect of French hegemony in Europe was destroyed by the revolutionary and Napoleonic wars. The country was unable to make good the loss of nearly one and a half million men on the battlefield. France's share of the European population became gradually smaller. So what we see is this period of extreme turmoil has left France unable to be the um, central power in Europe and eclipsed really by Britain, Austria and Russia. Sacre bleu. And what we see after the Congress of Vienna in terms of leadership is King Louis XVIII and he is the stereotypical Bourbon monarch. He's fat, he's pompous, and he ruled up until 1824. <laughs> he took the throne after Napoleon's 1814 abdication and was famously told by an aide, Sire, you are the king of France. To which he replied, Have I ever ceased to be? Well, Despite this absolutist posturing, and also a short period of counter-revolutionary terror that killed hundreds, but not thousands. Tame. <laughs> Very, Very tame. tame. Yeah, he's got nothing on Robespierre. <laughs> he actually kept many of Napoleon's reforms, such as the civil code and the idea of the career open to talent, rather than going back to a system of noble privilege. He also declined to reinstate the church lands that had been seized and sold after the French Revolution. Ultimately, though, on a constitutional basis, 
his power was effectively absolute. He could dismiss the Chamber of Deputies. He alone could do that. He alone had the right to appoint ministers, and he alone had the right to declare war. Man with a lot of power. Louis died of morbid obesity in 1824. Like Tom, my co-host, he was a big old fan of the Rustlers. <laughs> this was before Le Creuset had been invented. So. <laughs> um, he was replaced by uh, the comparatively svelte Charles X, a Catholic hardliner uh, who wanted to push back harder, going so far as to give the church control over the appointment of all primary school teachers. I actually agree with that, to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm told. In 1830, Charles X would prompt a full-blown constitutional crisis when he sought to dissolve the Chamber of Deputies and even further shrink the already tiny electorate in France. This led to a short and relatively bloodless insurrection on the streets of Paris, where most of the local troops in the garrison joined the protesters. However, alarmed by the chance of vive Napoleon, vive Napoleon. <laughs> the liberal clique, such as they were, in French politics, particularly led by Adolphe Thiers, took it upon themselves to invite Louis-Philippe of the House of Orléans to rule as a king, splitting from the Bourbon dynasty and moving to the House of Orléans. They saw him as a king who could respect the constitution, initially agreed by Louis XVIII, and push France perhaps closer to the British model of constitutional monarchy. Another Louis for us there, Tom. (laughs) How many are we at now? 16, 17? Yeah, well, 18 if you want to go about it in the (laughs) Count of the Bourbons, but a warning to our listeners that we are going to have to deal with a lot of Louis here. So we've already been through Louis XVIII, Louis Philippe, Louis Napoleon, who would go on to be Napoleon III, and we'll also get to meet his son, also called Louis, known as Lulu. Oh, very sweet. (laughs) So, while Louis Philippe, King Louis Philippe now, was more liberal, just about, than the Bourbon kings, his July monarchy was still highly centralised and offered democracy only to the French elite. Only 5% of French adult males could vote, even after Louis-Philippe had relaxed the qualifications on voting. As historian Richard J. Evans notes, the 1830 revolution in France seemed to have settled little, as Republicans, Bonapartists, Orléanists, and Legitimists, those who supported the House of Bourbon dynasty, continued to fight each other for the right to rule France. And it would be Emperor Napoleon III who would eventually emerge from this almighty fight. So, folks, tune in next time to see how Napoleon III took his tiny baby steps towards power as a child and as a young man. Subscribe to The Other Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts and you'll be the first to see when our new episodes come out. And don't, under any circumstances, forget to rate the podcast on your platform of choice. And please do follow us on social media, at The Other Napoleon. We can't wait to see you. We can't wait to see you. That's at The Other Napoleon Podcast. Smash that follow button. Obliterate that like button. See you next time.